Hi, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Bio, a podcast that shares the stories of our extraordinary people from their perspectives. You're probably used to hearing Keith Bevins as the host of this series, but I'm Sherrod Apte, a partner in Bain's Bangkok office, and I will be hosting a few episodes focused on our advanced degree population in APAC. Welcome, everybody. I'm joined today by Willie Chang, who's an associate partner in our Singapore office, currently in the process of changing offices and moving to the Bangkok office. And Willie's here today to share his journey from getting a PhD in physics at Harvard University to entering consulting and and joining Bain & Company. Willie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for uh, having me on the program today and uh, happy to share my views and my personal experience. Wonderful. And we're excited to hear them. I'd love for you to just maybe start by giving us a little, telling us a little bit about yourself and, and sort of, you know, where'd you grow up and what were some of the early influences in you that ultimately led you to Harvard and, and to get a PhD in physics? I was born and raised in Singapore for most of my um, childhood. I spent a couple of years in my ancestral homeland in Taiwan when I was a, when I was a kid, but uh, I came back to Singapore and then did most of my uh, schooling there. Influences during my childhood, I guess, uh, as a kid, my ambition was really to become a scientist. And actually, I wanted to be a Nobel laureate. But naturally, I think my career path has, has been a little bit more down to earth since then. But out of all the natural sciences, I was most attracted to physics and astronomy, partly because of its grandeur and also because it's its simplicity and its elegance. I don't think any other human discipline can accurately describe the physical world with simple concepts and equations. And so that was really what I wanted to do as a kid. I was a pretty argumentative kid who uh, only respected logic and reasoning. But since then, I think the career path, at least when I was a kid, through my teenage years as well as early adulthood, it was relatively clear, well, all my friends were majoring in finance, financial engineering and joining investment banks. I wanted to, to be a scientist. So I majored in physics at Columbia and continued on to, to do physics in, at Harvard for a PhD program. There, I focused primarily on condensed matter physics, particularly the study of low-dimensional physics at a nanoscale. It sounds fancy, I think, but on a day-to-day basis, I was really just working in a clean room for seven years, seven days a week kind of research. So yeah, it's not that glamorous, I think, once, once you're in academia. But it sounds glamorous, Willie, and I'd, I'd love to go back and sort of, you know, how does a kid from Singapore, were you a kid who liked to lay out on his back looking in, in the evening, looking up at the stars in the sky, and you got interested in astronomy? <laughs> Tell us a little bit more there about how you came to believe that physics and astronomy was sort of the most beautiful, uh, simplest way to define the world. I did have a telescope, although in Singapore, that's not very useful because of the light pollution. I did spend many nights <laughs> looking through a tiny telescope. Why do I like it in particular? I think it's just, it's just simplicity, right? And I guess this comes back to a little bit of, about consulting and how actually physics kind of works in consulting. I think from an early, I don't know if you remember this, but if you take mechanics, if you remember your 10th grade or 8th grade physics classes, you probably had to break down diagrams and arrows into X and Y components. I think in some sense, that was probably the most rudimentary framing or structure you could have when solving a problem. And there's a certain, once you, once you get this mental trick, it, it just works. Everything just falls into place. So it's a great way to, to view the world, to see the world, and it just helps you make sense of what's happening. And how did you end up choosing to go to Columbia in New York City? It's literally on the opposite side of the world from uh, Singapore. It was fortuitous, actually. It was clear to me that I wanted an American education, primarily because I think in the UK, well, first of all, as a Singaporean, you could largely choose UK or American most of the time. 
And the UK system, I guess, was a little bit more rigid. You had to decide when you were 18 years old what major you wanted to be in or what you wanted to read. And you couldn't change that for the next three or four years. But I think in the American system, at least, you had that option. And I think at the end of the day, most of the famous physicists, modern physicists, were or did do some kind of a spend years at an American university, Princeton, Harvard in particular. Why Columbia? I didn't get into Harvard. I didn't get to Princeton. I didn't get to Stanford. I got to Cornell. I got to Columbia. I didn't want to live in Ithaca, so that was it. <laughs> that was simple as that. Okay. And I'm just curious, you went as a, as a Singapore scholar or you went on your own or, or how was it that, because uh, I know a lot of people who leave Singapore end up going as, as sort of sponsored by the government. Correct. I went on my own. I was fortunate enough that my parents could, uh, could actually fund my education. But uh, I didn't, I guess even as a kid, I didn't like to be tied down by, by scholarships and, and commitments. So, so I was fortunate in that sense that I could pursue something that doesn't really have immediate commercial impact to the world. And then did you go straight from your undergrad into your PhD program or did you take some time off in between there? Well, I went straight through. I guess I didn't feel the urge to take time off. I think also because by the time I've done two years of military service in Singapore, so, so I felt like I was a little bit behind my peers in terms of age. So in a, in a hurry to get through there. And then, and then tell us a little bit about your time at Harvard and getting the PhD. You mentioned spending a lot of time in a clean room and everything else, but what was your PhD dissertation in sort of, you know, normal person's language so we can actually understand what it was that you were, you were writing about or your, what your dissertation was on? It's a little convoluted. The theme of it was around quantum computers. I'm sure uh, you would have seen a couple of articles, people talk, starting to talk about quantum computers as the next generation of, of uh, computing. But my particular area of research focused more on initial proofs of concept. So we technically, we were looking for the Majorana fermion, which is a theorized particle that could help, or that could be used in a quantum computer. And that was really my area of interest and my area of research. It's a very, very small part of the larger ecosystem of research that's being done on, on quantum computers. Did you write a, a thousand page dissertation or, you know, fill us in a little bit on, on the form that your PhD took and how long did it take you to actually get that PhD? Thankfully, it wasn't a thousand pages. I think it was about 200 pages, which is a bunch of publications stapled together with an introduction and a bibliography. So that was much easier. But day to day life was pretty enjoyable, I thought. I mean, outside of the pretty low wages or the pretty low stipends that you had to survive on as a PhD student. It was pretty fun. I mean, good friends, smart people, great community. I think that's, that's one thing that I, I really enjoy, and thankfully I can still enjoy while at Bain. The camaraderie with your peers, uh, the debates, intellectual debates. Yeah, no, it sounds like a great time. And then help us understand, you know, so you're a PhD student, you're, you're living and working in Cambridge, you're, you're getting your doctorate. How did you find, you know, how did you find your way to consulting into Bain and Company? So give, tell us a little bit about that story. I'm sure people have much more interesting stories, kind of more inspirational stories, but I think my personal reasons were a little bit more practical. By the end of my fourth year, I think, I was getting a little bit tired from lab work uh, by the time I spent six years in clean rooms. The topic was still interesting to me intellectually, but I think back then, looking ahead, I was about 29, I think, or 28. I was looking at my peers outside of academia with relatively stable and advanced career progression, kind of settled down. At that point in time, I thought I wanted something a little bit more stable, 
Because if I continued on, on grad school and academia, I would have probably done a postdoc at some university for two or three years. If I'm not lucky, I'll probably do another postdoc for another two or three years at some other university. And then I'll probably then try to get an associate professorship somewhere. So it's a lot of moving, not really settled down. The career is actually not that stable until you're fully tenured as a professor. And the financial rewards, while okay, I think at that point in time, I thought it was probably not too, too easily stretched, I think. So very, very mundane kind of thinking thought process, if you will. So I thought I looked around. Um, I looked around. I explored different options. And as a PhD student, I think you can you can either join consulting and join a hedge fund, something like IBM in their R and D department, so and so forth. But I wanted something that was continuously intellectually challenging, something that allows me to understand how the world roughly works, something with good financial rewards, with a clear career advancement, clear progression. I didn't want to. I also wanted something a little bit more strategic. I didn't want to be stuck in a R&D department, where kind of your career, barring outstanding performance, was probably within that R&D scope, right? So, I mean, weighing all that options, I think consulting came out as a as a relatively clear option that ticked many of the boxes. Of course, with some trade-offs, right? My first year at Bain, I actually spent almost a year in Bangkok, flying back and forth. I had two cases in Bangkok, and so that was my. That was my introduction to the jet-setting lifestyle of a management consultant. I was here in Bangkok, and then ever since then, I've pretty much stayed mostly in Singapore, just because my casework brought me back to Singapore. Particularly, I spent about a year in our private equity ring fence, and so that just uh, kind of grounded me in terms of travel because most of the funds were just based in Singapore, and I didn't have to travel them when I was in the ring fence. And then I think it so happened that a lot of the Internet or the regional internet platforms, internet economy startups were mainly headquartered in Singapore, and I think that was when I started pivoting towards my area of focus, which is around working with digital insurgents, working within the digital practice, and yeah, and, and so happened that all of them were primarily based in Singapore. So, yeah, I got I got to share uh, that um, I think in one of those two cases in Bangkok, Willie, uh, you and I worked together. It was uh, for a right. uh, for a, <laughs> a, a a petrol station company. But I want to get to the digital natives and insurgents. But I think before that, it'd be fascinating. Explain to people when you say you worked in the PE ring fence what that means and what it means to work with private equity players. Bain is the leader in that in that space in terms of working with private equity. And it sounds you know it sounds interesting from the outside. But what does it really mean in terms of the day to day when you were in the private equity ring fence? No, that's a great question. So within the private equity ring fence, I'm probably making this sound a little bit too simplistic, but primarily three types of casework that you'll encounter. The first one is uh, due diligences. So typically within two to four weeks, a fund, in this case, the client comes to Bain and says, hey, we're thinking about investing in a particular target. From a commercial standpoint, is this target attractive? Are there any red flags? So very quickly within two to four weeks, you need to come up with a an assessment of the target, if you will. And you have to cover a broad range of topics, right? Market size, competitive landscape, how they position, value creation opportunity. So it's a very fast tempo kind of work. You also do post-acquisition work. So once the fund has acquired a particular target, how do you then set up the organization, the management, the plans, have it in place so that the investor gets uh, or minimizes the risk of uh, them getting their returns? 
And then we also do things around、uh, portfolio management, portfolio strategy work for funds. But primarily, I think probably eighty percent of the time you'll you'll see a lot of due diligences, and that's the kind of fast pace,、uh, really fast pace kind of work. And that is the bread and butter of our our sort of private equity practice, right? Which is really working with the world's largest firms. Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with you know what we call is a sort of overall call digital insurgents, and what are the sort of what are the challenges that a lot of them are facing, and and why do they come to consulting firms like Bain and Company to help them? Audience would love to hear a little bit about that. I think that that probably excites a large number of them. Maybe just to set things in context,、uh, we're talking about right-hailing companies, food delivery, e-commerce. These days, you'll probably start seeing a lot of digital finance and services players in Southeast Asia as well. They have had tremendous success. I think over the past five years,、um, their valuation now is is incredible. The amount of users who are on it now is incredible as well. I think challenges from their parts, quite a few actually. I think starting from a Startup position, fundraising is is a primary challenge. How do you attract enough investors to provide the funding that you need for you to continue to grow? And a lot of the funds or a lot of the investors are actually outside of Southeast Asia. So there's a lot of work that they need consultants to kind of educate investors around the market opportunities, intricacies, and nuances in the region. So that's one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum is also around growth. So once you've reached a certain scale in, say, e-commerce, what's next, right? Do I go into financial services? Within financial services, what do I go into? Do I start? Should I start my own e-wallet, which is very popular in Southeast Asia, or do I go to lending? Pretty much things like buy now, pay later lending. So if I buy a thousand-dollar iPhone on on Amazon, should Amazon offer me a, a installment plan, right? Which is almost a lend a loan. So that's another aspect. I think the other aspect that we're starting to see more frequently is, simplistically, I'll probably call it growing pains. They've reached a lot of these platforms now have reached about ten billion in valuation or thereabouts, and that's when they start to see, that's when a startup grows up and becomes, of a similar scale as a legacy company, in terms of number of people, organization, complexities. So that's never been kind of in their DNA, having an organized structure. How do you work between countries and business units? Who has the decision rights? How do you structure yourself? In the first five years of startup, you never think about things like that. So, so that's also one area where you know they come to consultants and say, "Hey,、um, you've seen enough big legacy companies. How do you help us on that? How do we structure our company now that you know we're up to ten thousand employees? We can no longer run as messily as a startup of a、uh, hundred people." That sort of shift from the、uh, back of the envelope or mom and pop garage to being a formalized, right, and more more classical. Maybe as we as we start to wind up here, you know, you you just joined or led actually the Bain team on a very interesting report, which was a joint venture with Google and and Tomasic, which I think came out in I want to say in Q four of last year or Q one of yeah. Tell us a little bit about what that report was and and why would Google, Tomasic, and Bain sort of form a partnership to deliver this report. That's actually a pretty fun piece of work for me.、Um, I never thought that I would get to publish anything after I left academia, but since I, I, I had a chance to publish with Google and Tomasic, and you're right, it, we, it came out I think in October, November last year, the Southeast Asia Economy Report. It's why did we want to do it? I think so. Google started it I think around 2015. That was their first edition. It's a not very well covered topic in Southeast Asia, internet economy. People know it. There's a tremendous opportunity, but no one really quite knows how big it is, how big it could be, and the challenges. So they ran it every year from 
and Tomasek join from an investor angle because you can't really talk about the internet economy without talking about investors and VCs pouring money in. And then Bain joined last year, forming the last leg of this partnership. And where we came from, because of the of the work that we've done around region, both with our clients as well as with investors, so it's with enterprise clients as well as investors, we brought a unique viewpoint that gelled both Google's uh, unique access to, to information, their insights, as well as Samasic's viewpoint as an investor. So yeah, it was a great partnership. Um, it's incredible, I think, what we can do. Samasic being one of the leading investors in the region, Google being one of the biggest internet economy players in, in the world, and Bain being a leading consulting firm. So yeah, it was fun. Great insights that we shared and developed together. And just if people are interested, you can actually just just go onto Google and uh, you know put in Google Tomasic Bain, and it'll it'll pop up as one of the things. You know, last question, Willie, as as we sort of need to wind up here, and, and I think a lot of the potential people listening to this podcast are curious. You know, what what does it take for somebody who doesn't have an MBA, who has an advanced degree, whether it's in in physics or whatever it is, to come into consulting and be successful? And you know, you're sort of role modeling what success looks like. What sort of bit of advice would you give them in terms of how do you pivot from academia into consulting? And I think that would be a useful way to sort of close off this podcast. So I guess a couple of things. First of all, not having a business background does not give you a disadvantage at all. I always tell candidates who have a non-business background, look, even with a business degree, you, you, don't, you don't really learn how to run a ride-hailing business, or you don't you don't really learn how to run a distributor. So don't worry about not having a business degree. Where I see candidates, or where I see the difference, I think in terms of raw intelligence and capabilities, look, a candidate with an advanced degree would have the same chances as a candidate with an MBA background. I think what the difference is, is uh, polish um, practice. So obviously a, a person with a degree with a, who went to business school or with a business degree probably had peers and friends before they were graduating, practicing and doing a lot of mock interviews and, and case practices. And I think that's where the difference is. As a PhD student, you probably don't have the same support network. Or even if you do, it's probably not as urgent as you know, business school students. So one thing would be, I think, practice. Get it out of the way. I think it's, it's think of a hygiene factor. Because we know you're intelligent, right? You just have to show that you, you put in the effort to make sure that you got you got the reps in to demonstrate that you've practiced and you really want it. So I think that's the second one. And I think the last one is probably around a bias towards action. I've seen, as a researcher, you're used to doing analysis and more research and more analysis. But I think eventually you have to say, look, I'm not here to do research for the client. I'm here to advise the client. So during the interview or during any part of your career, I think you have the sense to say eventually, look, that's enough analysis. Let's uh, let's start thinking about actions. And how do I actually execute? Right. So that's probably the three things I would, I would advise uh, advanced degree candidates. Wonderful, Willie. Thank you very much for your time today, and we look forward to hopefully uh, Willie's in the process of transferring from Singapore to Bangkok, where his fu- his fiance I don't know if you're already married is is uh, based. So we're looking forward to welcoming him here. But thank you again for your time, Willie, and uh, really enjoyed our discussion today. Thank you, Sharon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you would like to share a review or give us input on what you would like to hear on the podcast, please email our inbox at beyondthebio at We'll see you soon with some new episodes. Thanks for listening.